Welcome back to CPP Chat, a sometimes weekly and sometimes monthly, it seems, look at what's going on in the world of C++, <laughs> chatting with guests from the community. But before we get to this week's guest, we just need to semantically merge in a disclaimer. John? Thank you. Uh, this, uh, this disclaimer is in all uppercase, so I'm going to have to do all this. I'm going to shout it and hope to not blow out the microphone here. Disclaimer of warranty. You acknowledge that the code is provided as is, and CPP Chat expressly declaims all warranties and conditions, including but not limited to any implied warranties of non-infringement, merchant merchantability, or fitness for a particular purpose, or any form of warranty that operation of the code will be error-free. Thank you for that. Ah, so... Uh, our guest on this episode is is Pablo Pablo Santos. I think we've been wanting to get you on since you were on CPP Cast, which was at the end of last year. <laughs> um, did you get a good response from that appearance? Yeah, thank you for. Well, I'm happy to be to be back with you. So yeah, it was uh, great. Yeah, um, I guess I think we have this in our notes to say, but. They just released today their 200th episode with Herb Sutter. Not their 200th episode with Herb Sutter. <laughs> 200th episode, which happens to be with Herb Sutter, this one. This one. <laughs> Let's make, that would yeah. have been exceptional. Yeah, it would have been exceptional. That's right. <laughs> um, and, and it's a fun episode, as you would expect with Herb. So, so yeah, you should, uh, you should go all listen to that. Um, do we have other... Items of note that we want to talk about before diving into our topic today? There's a little bit of conference news. Okay. Most of it's the same as we've been talking about recently. Other than, did we mention the, the ACCU Autumn Conference or Fall Conference in Belfast? I don't think we've ever talked about it. So they've got a conference that is the two days, it's in Belfast, it is the two days after the Belfast meeting. That's right. So... For those of you that are conference junkies, this is an opportunity to, to see speakers you might not otherwise get to see because they're hoping to get people who go to conferences and will stay over an extra couple of days. I mean, not, not to go to conferences, I mean, go to committee meetings. So it's possible you're going to get to see some speakers you might not otherwise get to see. So that's a, that's a reason to, to, uh, to think about that one. Um, and it, it is immediately before then meeting C++. Yeah which I just this week was able to confirm I'm definitely going to be able to go to. Um, I actually am going to be doing some training the week after, so I'm definitely going to be able to make it. Um, it's going to be a long so, trip for you then. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what else do we have to say? Oh, C++ Now. C++ Now has wi- uh, wound up. I don't think we've had an episode since then. No. Um, you weren't there this time, so we didn't get to do an on-site no. episode. But... That's always fun, but we didn't do that this year. Um, a, uh, the big news, I guess, from a news point of view, is uh, we have a new speaker, Connor Hoekstra, who so delighted the crowd that he essentially walked away with all of the best session awards. Uh, I think Dave Sankel, Dave Sankel got one award, um, and even then, Connor was like runner-up on that award. <laughs> Uh, so everybody's waiting to see the video and of course the videos aren't up yet. Um, they're supposed to be up pretty soon, but, but they're not up yet. So, uh, so everybody's talking to me about that. I do, however, want to announce for those of you who are keeping track, um, speaker feedback. 
is already out. Speaker feedback is not out for CppCon uh, <laughs> half a year ago, uh, but we've got it out for C++ now. And that's thanks in large part to Peter Bendels, who's, who's introduced a new feedback system, which I hope it, we're going to have for CppCon so, so we have better and faster feedback to speakers. Um, anyway, uh, have you view a report for us on Core C++? Yeah, so Core C++ was uh, the new conference in Tel Aviv this year. And I was there, did a, a workshop and a talk. And as it turned out, two lightning talks as well. Uh, and it was a great conference, very well run. You say that like you hadn't planned to do that. Were these like last minute things? The, the lightning talks were, yes. I see, I see. Uh, I think, I think we, we registered for them maybe a couple of weeks before the conference. And I got, got two accepted. So as I say, it was a great conference, very well run, very smooth. Very little went wrong. I think the, the most... Critical, I could say, was that there were some connectivity issues, but uh, most new conferences have that. Mine certainly did. So mm-hmm. no complaints there. Very impressed. We'll definitely be going back. And it was my first time in Tel Aviv or Israel in general, uh-huh. and I'll definitely be going back there as well. Just wish mm-hmm. I'd had a few more days either side of the conference to, to enjoy that. So anyone that has the opportunity to go there, I do recommend you give it a try. Let me ask you a question. Were there a lot of trip reports there? We only got Two trip reports for Sepals now. Last year we had eight. I think all the trip reporter people must have gone to because <laughs> they were almost the same. They weren't exactly the same time. Uh, no, Cora was the next week, so they yeah. were very close. Yeah. Um, I do remember seeing a couple of trip reports. Don't remember there being a lot. So maybe people are just all trip reported out. Could be. Could be. All right. So. Uh, I did mention meeting C++. They're still taking the call for submissions, yeah. which is important because I haven't put in my submission yet. And uh, and C++ Russia, the autumn one, because there's two now. Yeah. It's a spring and an autumn. Uh, I guess spring is going to be in Moscow and, and autumn is St. Petersburg. Is that how it's going to work? That's how it is this year. I presume okay. it's going to be the same next year. Okay. Um, and NDC Tech Town? Yep. Uh, they've announced speakers? They haven't announced all the schedule, but they've been on speakers. So uh, we'll right. have a link to that. I shall put a link in the show notes. I think actually okay. the schedule might be might be there now. Okay. Need to check that. And is there a is there a JetBrain update here? There is, yes. I, I put it in. So we've just started the uh, EAP for C-Line 2019.2. So uh, EAP if you don't know, is our name for a beta early access program. Uh-huh. So we'll be releasing that in a, in a couple of months. But right now you can you can download that for free and start playing with it. Mm-hmm. And as uh, as you can imagine, there's always lots of new features. But one of the ones that people are talking about the most is parameter hints. So this is where you, you're writing a call to a, to a function or a constructor. And after you've written it, it will actually fill in in line in the code the names of the parameters. So it's almost like you've got named arguments, uh, right. but it's, it's doing that for you. So that's, that's a really nice feature that we're actually rolling out across um, pretty much all of the IDEs, even the C++ IDE, C-Line. So definitely give that a try. Um, that's got to be a lot of fun with uh, <laughs> overloaded uh, uh, functions, right? Uh, yes, but we have to deal with those anyway. Uh, they've done a really good job. Uh, I did, yeah. I've been playing around with it, and I did find one or two limitations. I mean, it's, it's only the first version of the AAP, so there's, there's time mm-hmm. to fix it. Uh, I think it's an unbounded problem in general, but 
It is even coping with uh, variadic templates sort of forwarding on to, to other functions. So you know, a good example would be um, make unique or make shared. So we'll even oh. give you the primitives for those. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's... Uh, oh, that's very clever. They, they've done a very good job of that. Yeah, I'm impressed. That's, that's very clever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you just have to try it for yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I guess can be arranged. <laughs> yep. Well, I shall put a link in the show notes. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, so we should talk about uh, Plastic SCM. And, uh, but I think the, the really exciting thing to talk about is semantic merge. But uh, uh, I think mostly when you were on CPP Cast, Pablo, you were talking about uh, semantic merge. Uh, but let's save that and talk a little bit about plastic first. Okay, sure. So, well, uh, well, first, thank you for for giving me the chance to to be with you today. I'm I'm very happy to to spend this uh, time with you guys. So, okay, so uh, I'm Pablo Santos. I'm the founder and CTO at uh, Cody Software. With we're a Spanish company, uh, and we have been in business for the last uh, 14 years doing version control. So we are one of the few crazy ones doing full-stack version control out there, right? Which is, like, super exciting and, of course, uh, quite difficult in terms of, you know, all the options you have to cover and all the competition that it's there, especially from the Git side of things, right? So Plastic uh, is, uh, as, uh, as, a, as I said, of a full-stack version control. By full-stack, I mean it's, it's not built on top of another system. It's not just a GUI. It's not just, you know a web layer on top of Git or something else. It's really like the core part of the plastic command line, the GUIs and, and everything, right? So we built uh, everything from scratch. And you might be wondering now, okay, why on earth anyone should go for something different than Git these days, right? And well, the reason why we're still in, in business and we are we are doing well, hopefully, is that, well, mm-hmm. thankfully, I will say, is <laughs> that um, we have a, a few differentiators from, from, from Git, right? Basically, uh, plastic is very strong in in several industries. Uh, one of them is the gaming industry, and that's uh, because we are very good with super big repos and uh, super big files. So having repositories in plastic, you know, over four terabytes or five terabytes or something like that, it's, it's not a, a big deal. We also can work distributed like Git does, so that's not a big difference. But we, at the same time, even at the same repo, on the same repo, we can work centralized, so plastic and work centralized, and that's very good for, you know, give flexibility to many teams, especially when the repos are large, because you don't have to, I mean, you don't need to have like a local clone eating a lot of disk space and so on, right? So you can particularly repositories that large, exactly. And also uh, the other, well, there there are many other things, right? But uh, the the key tool probably this two plus also visualization. Like we focus on the entire stack, the GUIs, and we do something we are very proud of, which is the the branch explorer. And then of course on top of that we do our own div tool, our own merge tool, our own side by side div, and uh, part of that is uh, what you mentioned already, which is semantic. So. Before we get into that, I want to ask you, this This is the privilege of having a podcast like this, is that I get people like you on, and I get to ask the question. I've always wanted to ask somebody in the repository business, okay? Here's the question, is do you have any non-code customers? In other words, I can't imagine, 
I can't imagine a sophisticated piece of software where you don't have a repository. You have multiple people working and you're going to try to do this with just sharing files. You would go insane. You have to have a repository. However, we are not the only people who do this. If, if I'm doing a large document, like, I don't know what, like a, maybe a dictionary or an encyclopedia or something like that, where we have lots and lots of editors. Uh, I'm thinking mostly of text, obviously, but it really could be anything. It could be architecture plans or anything like that. Do you have any market outside of traditional source code or people doing software? I mean, obviously, essentially, it's software by nature, but I mean, something other than code. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, in fact, uh, we have some, but they are all, you know, around some development they do. Like, uh, I mean, we don't have like, you know, uh, a group of people doing books or something uh, using plastic, but we have teams using plastic for code and then they have uh, uh, people using plastic for something else. Of course, there's something here. documentation or something. Yeah, like that. Exactly. In fact, yeah. uh, that's, a, that's a good story because there are a couple of things here. One of them is... Well, in games, all the artists that use plastic, they don't work with code, right? They work with yeah. uh, big files, they work with right. assets, they work with video, they work with all that. So they are, and they are primary customers of plastic, right? So they are yeah. one of the key reasons uh, to, to... Because to, those to are hard to diff, right? And so you have to make any little tiny change, you got to store the whole file... Exactly, but not only that. It's also the it's also the workflow. I mean, uh, we have in fact we have like two workflows and two GUIs uh, for each operating system we support, mm-hmm. and one of them is uh, really for developers, all the branching, merging, all the things we you know breathe yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. And the other one is really focused on developers. Sorry, on artists, and this uh-huh. is completely different. It's not only what happens on the background because it's like okay, you store files, that's it, right? But it's about how you use. And the funny story is that after that, in some teams, we found out that they started using Plastic for development. Then if they are in games, they use it for assets and so on, which is pretty natural. But yeah. we also found out some teams putting everything, you know, some other things into version control. And we thought it was going to be only something we did internally. For instance, I'll tell you something about that. Internally, our sales team used Plastic and our people in administration they use plastic for almost everything, but you yeah. know that's basically because it's like our all car, all all culture here, and everyone wants right. to use the product and so on. So sure. it's not you know it's, it's like something you know eating your own dog's food or something like that. But we found yeah. some teams outside doing that, and then from a business, I would perspective, think lawyers. This is this is a perfect example. Lawyers, yeah, I would imagine they would want to have. Every change to the document, we want to know who made the change. We want to know why they made the change, you know, those kinds of things. That, that to me, and the ability to diff to contracts, uh, to me, uh, I would imagine lawyers would be all over this. The, the thing is, we, we thought about that many times. I mean, in like, a, you know, from a business perspective, like, should we stand to other markets? Should we, you know, go into a different kind of business with the core we already have? And I think from a technological, from, from a technology perspective, we could probably do it. The thing is, you know, like always with products, the focus. I mean, uh, it's not just about the core. You, you cannot ask a lawyer to use the same GUI a developer is using because simply they think in a different way, right? They don't want right. to know about branching or merging or even commit. Maybe they just want to something that happens behind the scenes. For instance. So yeah. answering your question is something we have considered many, many times, but uh, we don't have a product as such yet. It's something we, we, we thought many times, but... 
who knows, maybe yeah, in you a few. probably need to think about it on entirely different GUI, different terms. Yeah, it's probably quite the undertaking. Although, if you make that investment, it might pay off well because there's lots yeah, of lawyers it, out there. It's <laughs> about <too> it's <laughs> about the the mentality of uh, of uh, how to think about the product, right? Is right. uh, you should think in a totally different way than we are used to, right? We are right, a team right. of developers creating software for developers like us, and then we have to really switch and, and think into into different ways. So yeah, but that's a really interesting thing. <laughs> I won't repeat what Robert Ramey in the chat is saying about lawyers right now. but um, <laughs> I won't I, repeat that just in case my lawyer. <laughs> but I, I will mention that he, he, he is saying that he um, he's storing architectural designs in Git as it happens. And he's, he's finding that works pretty well for him. So there's another non-source code use. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's, it's kind of what, what Pablo was just saying. Once you learn how to use it, you you see also i mean that's the biggest you know i mean if i were to propose this to to let's say i knew there are a couple of people who are writing and say hey you guys should you guys should use a repository as a writing team but it would just be a nightmare for two people to do that it's it's complicated they got to learn things they got to do all this stuff on the other hand if you happen to have two programmers that want to get together and write a science fiction story and you say oh you should use a repository they say oh of course that's what we're doing you know it's like once you Absolutely. know the tool it's an automatic, obvious thing to do, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, But it's also about the tools you use, right? Many tools we use as developers uh, are completely around the concept of versioning stuff. I mean, because basically they are plain text files, right? And that makes diffing and everything various reasons. Right. I was writing uh, at the beginning of the year, I, I created a, a book on version control, really around plastic SCM. And uh, I started writing it with Word, but then I switched to, you know, something else because uh, I, I really wanted to diff and, 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 and merge changes, incorporate changes from all the people and all that. So you end up writing in a, in a text editor or something. Mm. Uh, and that's something natural as a developer, but don't ask probably someone outside that world to use a plain test editor to write a lot of tests because he, he will go crazy or something. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so let's, let's talk about the exciting, cool, sexy thing. Uh, the semantic merge. And I got to say that it kind of blew my mind when I heard you talking about this on uh, CPPcast. Uh, so so explain to us what semantic merge is. Okay, well, here it is. I mean, ask any programmer how diff should be, and they probably will tell you, well, if I move a, a function to a different location, the diff should detect that, right? So what we did was only to implement what every everyone had in mind, but, uh, you know, never did before. So from the very beginning, back in 2005, when we were just starting the company, we wanted to do this, but it took us a while to get there because first, well, you know, we were just building the core of plastic and then we were trying to make it work and uh, getting our first customer, and you know, very busy days. But then at some point around 2011 or 2012, uh, we started working into, into this tool. And basically uh, what it does is what everyone listening right now will will be thinking which is okay we parse the code first and we don't diff on a line per line basis which is what every diff tool on earth does because we built our own too right but we parse the code first we create a structure with uh, where every function is what is a container like if you have a class and it has functions or it has uh you know attributes or you have fields or whatever in, in depending on the language 
and then we merge and div based on that. Well, first div, the merge based on that. Since we already have a lot of experience uh, doing this kind of work with directories and files and tree structures, it was completely different code, but really applying the same uh, the same know-how, right? So at the end of the day, what you can get with uh, semantic is that, okay, what what's the actual value? I mean, the thing is, you want to refactor your file, you want to move things around, clean up stuff, you can do it, and you don't have to worry on, okay, what is going to happen when I diff it? It's going to be crazy, or what is going to happen when I merge it? What if someone else was was making a fix too? That's why we try to, to resolve. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that I think about, it's, it's crazy, but I actually think about this when I write code, for example. If I want to add, let's say I have a bunch of enums and I want to add a new enum, if uh, if I'm adding an enum at the bottom, then let's say I have this written in a, in, a, in a vertical list rather than a horizontal list. So I have this vertical list, and now I'm going to add the last enum, but I actually have to add a comma to the enum before it, Absolutely. which means now that line is going to have a diff line as well, right? Which is like, uh, yeah, it should understand more about what I'm trying to do semantically and recognize that. That, that comma is really not part of that line. It's part of the line that follows. And so you end up with weird things where I've actually seen code where people will put commas before things just, <laughs> just so that the diff is on the right line when they, when they add or remove that, that item. And not only the diff, it's also about the merge, right? You, you, you create a manual conflict if you just modify things. Uh, you know, you just add something and someone else was, I mean, you have an enum. Then both of us add the new entry the merge mm-hmm. should probably be automatic. Uh, that's exactly what we try to do. Where we really excel is in terms of uh, classes and, function, and functions or methods in, in Java and C Sharp. Uh, well, we, we support C, C++, Java, um, C Sharp too, and then a, a few other uh, languages too. The downside of working on a semantic-based tool is that you need to create a parser first. I mean, you, we have the test-based one as fallback, and it works with everything. I mean, it will work with a love letter or C++ because it doesn't <laughs> care, right, yeah. what is there. But then once you start parsing languages, you are dependent on, on what you support. And one of the cases that is super interesting is suppose you add a function at the end of a class and then I add another one. Normally for almost every merge tool out there, I mean, I will say for everyone, for, for, for all of them, you will get a conflict. Like, okay, you added something on the same line. But you will say, as a human, but you know, it's just two different methods. So why don't you do it automatic? And with semantic, it's of course automatic. Another example: uh, suppose I move a method up for whatever reason. I want to put the I don't know visibility thing. I mean, more more visible things up or whatever, right? And then at the same time, you just made a small fix. Well, two things can happen: that the code is duplicated, which is really bad. It it can happen, or that you have a manual you know, conflict or something, which is a pain to solve. Not super difficult, but a pain. With semantics, it will be probably automatic. Like, you know, you just get your change moved up into the right location. And that's some of the things. And the clue you're using is the same thing that we as humans do, which is we named the function. So obviously we think it's the same function. We may see it's, it's been modified, but it's the same function. That's why it has the same name, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And the thing is that uh, things get a little bit more complicated after that because what happens when you rename a function? We still want to know it's the same, right? So we we based on the actual body of, of the function. So we stop the parsing at the function level. I mean, we don't do this diffing for ifs, analysis, and for loops or something. We just want to look into the structure and 
as soon as we detect a method, we treat the body as a as a as a as a text block. So mm-hmm. to actually suppose you rename a function and move it to a different location inside the file. What we do is okay, we de- we detect a deletion plus a, plus an added one because it wasn't there before. And I mean the original one is not there anymore because the name is not there. The new one wasn't there before. So what we do is actually match the the deletions and added. And if the content is similar, I mean, more than a certain percentage similar, then mm-hmm. we can we can match it. And that's basically how it works. The, um, the super interesting thing here is that, uh, well, we started with that a few years ago. We were adding more languages. Uh, we completely rewrite the GUI a couple of times because one thing is having the core, but I can tell you the really difficult thing is to make it understandable. Like, I mean, you could do it from a command line or something, but then it will be crazy. Uh, so we actually rewrote the, the, the GUI a couple of times. And then uh, we created uh, uh, a new piece of uh, code on top to actually be able to do these sort of merges across files. And that's what I'm really super excited about. Like oh, wow. You move a function to a different file because you're refactoring, splitting, whatever, and right. someone modified in the original file, and then you get it, merge it on the, on the real destination, right? And that's something super cool. So that's one of the things... This is probably just the start, but uh, yeah, I mean. But this has really been, you were saying, this has really been the vision from the beginning. Yeah. This is where was, you wanted to be. Absolutely. So that's got to be very satisfying for you after having built up a business to let you start going down the, the really exciting path that you'd wanted to do from the beginning. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there are a couple of things here, and I think as, as every programmer will, will probably face that, right? Like at the beginning, it's, it looks like super big, and then once you, once you have it, it's like, why we didn't do it before. I mean, it wasn't that big, right? But probably you just underestimate all the steps you made before. Like, I mean, I always get the, the same feeling. Like, okay, now we have it merging cross-file stuff. And they say, okay, but, you know, we were talking about that back in 2011 or something. So it's not that big. It's not that... And it wasn't that such a huge effort. But you always take for granted all the, the steps you did before. Yeah. At least that's what, that what happens to me. Many times. Well, I wonder if maybe you just get um, you you get kind of intimidated because you know it's what I think of as the difference between an algorithm and a heuristic. You know, an algorithm will always give you the correct answer, whereas a heuristic is kind of a best guess. And the problem is, if you're trying to write software around a heuristic, you have to think about well, what about those cases where it doesn't quite work, and how do you make that not brittle? How do you make that not come all apart just because oh, somebody took a function, renamed it moved it and changed part of it and we are completely lost well you have to deal with that graceful gracefully i mean there's a point at which of course you got to say well i'm not even sure it's the same function anymore but you have to deal with it gracefully rather than absolutely you you, you know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah. really really yeah, th- th- yeah those little kids and that's one of the things we evolved over time because uh for one t- uh, i mean you, you cannot really let your design be affected by corner cases from the beginning because then you end up with something that is completely messy. Yeah. But at the same time, the key is exactly what you said. Okay, how do you handle the things you don't handle? Like, but, but on a graceful way. Like, okay, you know, this case, we cannot deal with it. But instead of just breaking something, we just yeah. let you know. So one of the things we were really obsessed about, especially, I mean, for diff is not such a big deal, right? Because you diff something... And if the diff is not correct, okay, the user will, you know, understand and say, okay, you know, ah, it's, it's not okay, but that's it. The real problem is with the merge, 
because the, the goal of, of a merge tool is to automate as many conflicts as possible. I mean, you, programmers don't want to be merging every single file manually. I mean, mm-hmm. some of them do, but that's not really what, uh, you know, as a whole we want right. to do. So you have to ensure you don't break the result. So if a merge is automatic, it must be correct. And that's mm-hmm. something that we are really obsessed about. So one of the things right. we did from the very beginning was to take uh, thousands of public repositories and do something what we what we call was a replay, right? So basically, it's uh, finding all the merges there, uh-huh. then forcing to replace them and making sure the result was the same. And when it wasn't, because there are cases where the result is not the same because it was, you know, uh, made by a, by a human or something, we tried to f- to 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 make sure all the components were there. Right. Also, we started with something even simpler, like, okay, you parse the code, you create a structure, you make a change, you write it down, but you must ensure there's nothing missing. For instance, something very easy is like, okay, a parser normally ignores the comments, but you cannot ignore the, the comments on a merge tool. Suppose you merge something, yeah. and then you get you, you, you get rid of the comments. That would be crazy, right? right so we right. put a lot of effort in doing this sort of how we call them replays. Some of them are simpler. Like, okay, you read a file, reconstruct it, write it, and it must be exactly the same. Sounds very simple, and it is at the end of the day, but it's something we tested a lot, a lot, a lot, and then doing merge replace. Replace, sorry. So you actually had a huge amount of test data to yeah. verify your approach. Yeah, that gives you a lot of confidence when you can... And it's never... I mean, and even... Uh, I always see testing like a safety net that gets thicker and thicker and thicker. Just yeah. You start with a few tests, and then you just catch the big ones. Then you make it... Thick, you know, thicker and thicker, and then you you catch more and more. Uh, yeah, testing was always an obsession for us from yeah. the first day. I mean, I, I wouldn't say our tests are perfect because they are not, but uh, we're really obsessed on that. Like, really trying to 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 have a huge uh, net safety net of automated tests. I've yet to meet someone who who says that their testing is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, so don't worry about that. I love to think that, and I love to, uh, that will be true. But, you know, the thing is that uh, sometimes we are so proud of, you know, every single release, especially in plastic. We make, like, a release a day, but we only, like, publish it for customers, like, twice a week or something like that. And every single release goes through, I think the last number was, like, 35 hours of uh, automated testing, which means we use a lot of, I mean, it doesn't mean we wait 35 hours. It means uh, we run a lot of, of those in parallel. And then it makes you feel like quite, you know, I wouldn't say proud, but uh, safe. Like, okay, we have a lot of testing. And then you just catch uh, a stupid bug. Yeah, it gives you a lot of confidence. But even with that, sometimes you find a stupid bug in production and then you say, okay, (laughs) what happened here? I mean, we we made all that effort. I mean, like 40% of our code overall is testing. For instance, plastic in the server side is like 50% or so. And still, uh, there's, there's always something you miss. But I mean, uh, that's uh, that's that's the state. That's yeah, well, that's where I'm, we are today, right? So. I'm delighted to hear about this. Your test focus. I, I think in the C plus plus world, we don't have enough test focus. I think culturally, everyone acknowledges how important testing is, but it's not part of our fabric the way it is with some other languages. And I think. I think I've said this on the show before. I think it's because of our really old heritage. Uh You know, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but Alex uh, once mentioned to me that when he made the, Alex Stepanov, when he made the submission of the, what 
what, what he called the standard template library to the standards committee. He said, I actually had a whole test suite on that, and it never even occurred to me. No one asked for it, and it never occurred to me to submit it. And I think that says something about our culture at the time. I think now it probably would have, probably would have, people have thought about it. But at the time, um, you know, testing was this afterthought. Testing was something that junior engineers did, and it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't considered as important and as valuable. And I think, I think we acknowledge that intellectually, but it's not easy to change behavior. It's not easy to change culture. And yeah. So um, I think um, it's something it's, uh, that is really changing over the last few years. But I completely, I mean, I really agree with you. I mean, I remember my first job <laughs> back in Belgium. Uh, I was uh, assigned the, at the beginning to the test group. Yeah. And I, I, I said, hey, but I signed up to be a developer, right? Now yeah. I have a different vision and I understand how important testing everything was. But at, out of out of college, I was like, hey, I, I want to develop, not to create tests. So, yeah, I, I think, but I think things uh change a little bit uh for for good right so yeah well how do you how do you feel about that phil do you feel like uh you're as as someone selling a test tool or i guess selling is not maybe the right term for that developer of a test tool do you feel that uh it it's getting more respect now than it used to it is uh gradually slowly but i definitely see the changes over the years and that was actually one of the reasons that i first decided to write catch that's probably the main reason was that I felt that the existing test tools were just creating too much friction to actually get into it. So that was putting more people off because it's hard enough to actually persuade people to start testing in the first place. But if you then make a complicated process for them to actually get started with it, that they'll just give up. So I'm really pleased that over the years, the feedback has constantly been that you know, because of catch, people have been able to start testing whereas they weren't previously. So I'm glad to have been a small part of that change, but I think overall it's just been a, uh, a sea change. What we need now is just somebody to to start doing uh, TDD courses in C++, and I think that will, <laughs> that will really help. What a great idea. Yeah. Any, any idea who might do that? Um, come to think of it, I think I'm doing one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> When's that going to happen? Um, there's one at CPPCon, but actually before that, I'm doing it at uh, NDC Tech Town. Oh, okay. Excellent. And we might learn a little bit about Catch as students in, your, in that class? Um, it, it comes up, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's more about the process. I mean, you're not really pushing a particular tool. It's the process, no. right? The test-driven development process. Exactly. And I almost feel a bit embarrassed to, to use Catch so much during the course, but it's just so much easier, so... <laughs> doesn't seem worth trying to use anything else right 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 so um so anyway uh, didn't mean to send us down this <laughs> side shoot uh pablo but but i i i'm i'm just delighted to hear about a company that that's so test focused in their culture and and that's really exciting the other thing i want to ask you about is have you so how does the semantic merge work in the in the flow, I guess what I'm saying is, is this an option for your customers or is this just automatically when they do a merge, it just works so seamlessly that nobody ever says, how do I turn this semantic stuff off? I just want to see a text merge. Okay, that's that's a good question. Okay, there are, there are two things. First is that we uh, sell semantic as a standalone tool. So if you are a Git user and want to use it on Windows right now, because uh, the, the version we have is restricted to, to Windows at this point, 
you can use it, right? Like, okay, you can plug it to Subversion or Git or any version control you're using. So suppose, I mean, the, the Git case, all you have to do is to configure your Git merge tool. So instead of seeing the, you know, text file with marks or launching KD3 or any other of the great merge tools out there, you can mm -hmm. just configure semantics. And then how it works? Well, if it can automate the merge, you won't see anything like, okay, you run merge, it's automatic, period, nothing else to do. If it cannot automate it, then uh, it's when it will show up. And the interface is actually quite similar after the second iteration, because the first one was like really alien to, 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 to everyone, and that's why we decided to change it. But after the second iteration, the, the, the interface is pretty similar to what you can see in, I don't know, KD3, as I said, or P4 Merge, or any other tools, mm -hmm. like the three panes with how it was, how it, what one contributor did, what the other contributor did, and the result, right? So it's like four panels there. Uh, but the nice thing is that, of course, is you know dealing in a function per function uh, way and and so on. So uh, going back to your to your question, one of the really nice things about Semantic is that many merges that are normally manual will end up being automatic. Like many small things on a daily basis, you don't even notice. Uh, once you have it, of course, uh, simply go away. So that's a nice thing. In fact, we have an, an option, which is, okay, I still want to show it even if it's automatic. And some people use it at the beginning till till they start, you know, trusting the tool and seeing, okay, yes, what it's doing is... Uh, because we use some heuristics, but most of the of the merge stuff is really algorithmic. Like, okay, I have a country... I mean, if you if you and I touch the same line, then there's no heuristic possible. It's an it's a it's a manual conflict. The things you you actually solve uh, with semantic is that many times traditional text tools think there is a conflict because they are comparing the wrong method. Mm -hmm. Because you move something to different location, and once you understand there are different methods, that the the conflict is is automatic. That's it. But if you if we really touch the same block of code in the same function. Concurrently, there's mm -hmm. no heuristic there. It's just, okay, it's manual. So let me ask you this. You probably know this a lot because of the test stuff that you looked at, the, all those merges out there that you've analyzed. How often do people move functions? Well, so, again, that's a very good question. Surprisingly, uh, more than what you will think about. We run a... Um, we run many tests uh, using public GitHub repositories, uh, doing um, what we call merge replay, right? Like finding every merge they did and, and replying. And on average, we find that we can automate about 20% of the manual conflicts that happen there. So we can reduce, let's see, let's say 20% of manual conflicts. That normally means, I mean, not all merges we handle are related to moving code, but most of them are. So that means that people not having semantic because they, they are not doing that. I mean, we are just replaying their repos. Um, not not having that, I mean, so normally they try to avoid it. Still, they do it quite a few times. And then what we found out in teams that were using semantic, you know, uh, on purpose, let's say, I mean, just really using it is that they mm -hmm. do it even more because now they know they have it. So the implication there is that our code is not as good as we would really like it to be because we're trying to avoid manual merges. That's a very good conclusion. In fact, when in other words, if, if I, if I didn't have to worry about this, I would move this around and make it easier to understand, maybe make it easier to maintain, 
but I don't want to have to go through a merge because I know somebody else might be changing there. Absolutely. And so, yeah. You hit Um, exactly the the thing that I try to explain from a more value perspective. Like, the real thing we do with semantic is not really doing merges. Our our actual purpose is helping teams to create, to to clean up their code because you don't do refactors as often as you should if you fear the merge. So that's exactly, that's, I mean, what you said is exactly the tagline that started everything. So, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Wow, interesting. I wonder interesting if there's idea. another way that um, using semantic merge can actually encourage you to improve your your code as well. Because if the, the unit of granularity of the, of the semantic merge is typically the function, then I would imagine it'll work better if you have smaller functions. <laughs> and... So people tend to write these these big functions and methods that really they should split split up, but that's going to be harder to merge. So do, do you actually find that at all? Yeah, well, the thing is that uh, there's one thing we still don't do, which is uh, dealing well with split functions. Like, okay, I have a, a, a function called whatever, and then I split it in three. That's something we don't handle yet. That's in the roadmap, actually. That's one of the difficult things we'll like to go through. But uh, what we find very often is uh, you move functions to a different class, you uh, resort them because of whatever visibility reason or, or something like that, or you just decide to rename the whole thing. And we f- what we find is that it still happens even if you don't use it. But as you mentioned before, uh, the thing is you feel safer if you are not thinking, hey, no one is going to merge this, so I, don't, I better don't do it. I mean, what we found on many teams is like, you don't do refactor while you develop, I mean, generally speaking, because then, okay, let's wait for this event to actually do the cleanup. Right. Well, if you have a better way to merge, it's like, okay, while I'm doing any fixes, um, I mean, while you're doing fixes, I could be cleaned up the co- cleaning right. up the code. I mean, not enough. I mean, of course, I don't want to say to to listeners today that this is like magic, right? Of course, if, if you completely change the file, there's no semantic or human <laughs> able to merge that, right? I mean, you'll, you'll have to spend time on that. But if what you do is makes sense in terms of, you know, it's different, but it's not like crazily different, then lots of many, many stuff can be automated. But I wonder if what Phil was trying to say was not so much affecting merges, but for new code, if people are more likely to write smaller functions in new code because they know that merges will be easier if they if they are using smaller, more cohesive uh, functions, is that what you were trying to say, Phil? Because that's what I was hearing you saying. Exactly that. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So yeah, that's an interesting point. To to be honest, I'm I'm so biased with that that I never thought on on. The, I mean, I, I'm so biased uh, towards creating small functions like <laughs> yeah. that i didn't think it will help in that way but uh yeah pr- you're probably right yeah i think we we, we live in our small bubble uh, doing our code for i mean we've been living in the same code base for 14 years so we have this motto which is like any bad thing you do will come back so even if you don't <laughs> want to yeah so it's like i mean <laughs> what we say is we do we try to do clean code not even because we believe on that, which which we do, but mm-hmm. it's more like, you know, a selfish way of thinking. Like, if you do it wrong, it will come back and hit you back because... It'll bite you. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's that, that's why, right? So, yeah, I, I didn't think about that. There may be a so, show title in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
I will take note of that actually. Like if you, know, you write smaller I, I functions, because I, I some of the training material that I use is based on Scott Myers' uh, mm-hmm. training material, and and one of the things he says in the section when we're talking about lambdas, he says uh, uh, short. I don't remember exactly how he says it. Short focused lambdas are probably best. And every time I look at that, I make the the class. I think short focused functions in general sound like they're best to me. I don't I I don't know why lambdas should be any different in that regard. I know exactly what Scott was trying to say, but um, but yeah, having short functions that that um, make make the merge tool a lot easier. But I think as as Phil was saying, is if you get used to if you know the short functions are going to make your merge life easier down the road. Yeah. It might be more worth it to you to think a little harder about. I mean, I fall in this trap all the time. I write some nice, I write an object that is really, really focused. It does one exact thing. Oh, wait a minute. I got to add one. Note. Okay. So that's, and before you know it, this, this single well-developed object is really doing about four different things. <laughs> and, you know, it, it started out in such a nice idea. And, and I know it's just because at every little step, it seemed to make more sense to just tweak it a little bit than to take the time and refactor it, you know. And it's kind of what you were saying is that will come back to haunt you if you if you take that shortcut. Right? Absolutely, and um, but but even in a, in a really high focus, uh, even if you if you focus on, on high quality a lot, it will happen. I mean, code rots, code gets worse, and and you just look into it and said, how on earth did we did we do that? And and at the end of this, you didn't do it like this it just evolved i mean it's like it was probably a good idea when it started and then it got it got worse and worse one thing we are doing uh well uh most of the code we write is in c sharp so i started my career as a c plus plus developer and now i'm a weak-minded c sharp developer sorry for that uh but i have a lot of respect for the real you know c sharp c plus plus and so on but one one of the things uh we we end up doing over the years is that um we write more and more on a, I wouldn't say really functional oriented, probably it is, but really more on, you know, really simple code with functions and passing, you know, everything it needs and not relying that much in st- on, on a status and, and all that. So really trying to do simpler and simpler and simpler code every day. That's really our, our motto. So I don't know if I'm just going back or I'm really going in the right in the right direction, but that's what we try to do, really keeping it as simple as possible. If if I can um, make up make a plug for a previous uh, a previous guest, I've been reading Yvonne's book on functional programming, and you can tell I'm, I'm I don't know maybe a sixth of the way in, but so far I keep looking at this and I say to myself, is that functional programming? Or is it just good programming? I mean, everything he's talking about, it's like, well, that's just good programming. And I, I, I really feel like, yeah, making functions small and focused and well-named and, yeah. Yeah, functional programming is just good programming. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, but, but there's something that happened. I don't know if it just happened to me or my entire generation. But uh, when we started, when I started uh, out of... Uh, out of college and started doing the the first uh, you know professional programming I would say I was so you know biased by the object oriented programming and trying to do things well what I th- I thought it was well that I ended up over designing a lot a lot, a lot. and now I I really have this uh, view of okay the simplest the better like probably when you are a newbie I, I think it happens with the language too I mean I remember my when I was learning C I don't know last century 
uh, really trying to do these crazy things in a single line. Like, you know, you, you felt smarter or something. Now you'll never do that anymore, right? It's like, just keep it simple and, and that's it. But I think maybe you, there's this joke, uh, this uh, joke on the internet, like, okay, what a, a newbie does is hello world. Then as a junior, you do something much more complicated and so on and so on. And then as an expert, you again write hello world, something like that. So that's very funny. <laughs> A little bit funny and also discouraging at the same time, but I think it's true. I think I was gonna I was gonna tweet out that uh, the the difference between a a computer scientist and a software engineer is that if someone says, "Hey, that's clever," the computer scientist thinks that's a compliment, and the software engineer thinks that's a bug. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will use this one. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> if only it was true, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so, did uh, was there other stuff we want to talk about? Oh, I wanted to talk about if uh, if I can get you to come to uh, CPPCon and uh, and talk about uh, semantic merge at tool time. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Let's let's see. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. I. Uh, is how successful how successful is this? You you said that it is possible for someone to use semantic even without using plastic, right? Absolutely. You made it a separate a separate and it are you making some headway there? Are there people who are interested in the um, Yeah, we've been in, we've been in business uh with it for for a few years already. I mean, our our main product is obviously plastic, that's really what mm-hmm. pays the bills. Uh, we didn't pay much attention into the marketing side of things for semantic. Not we didn't put as much effort as we did with the with the other with the other product. So uh, it's not like a super big business for us. It's important in terms of uh, a strategic point of view, and it's part of the main product at the same time. But yeah, I think it's interesting, and we have a lot of plans to to really make it bigger because. Uh, well, first we we'll like to to have it on Mac OS too, on Linux too. I mean. Our, our main, I mean, plastic is on the three platforms with GUIs and everything, so it, it's not such a huge thing, and we want to to make it there. And then we are also, I mean, there's one thing, right? Uh, some people don't really know what we're talking about till we really make a good explanation of it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we try mm-hmm. to, we, we need to to make it simpler and to to make it uh, available not only for like super merch pros or something like that, which was probably mm-hmm. like our view at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But really to make it as simple as possible so that anyone, even, you know, really junior engineers are not people that are into the merging or version control stuff because you can be a super huge programmer, super good programmer and not really an expert on Git or Plastic or anything like that. And that's, I think, it's one of our pending things to do, like make it, making it really much simpler and, and easy to use. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I think it's... Uh... I think it's one of the things that that kind of I find a little surprising when, which I'm not really in the business of doing this now, but I used to interview a lot of people right out of college and was surprised how many of them had essentially never used a repository for anything. They're, you know, they went through four years of computer science and they never put anything they wrote into a repository. And it's not that they needed it so much in college, although I suspect it would have saved their bacon a few times when they did something disastrous. Um, yeah. But uh, but when they trans- transition into real professional work, you know, they're they're really missing an important skill that we just 
you know, why are we not teaching people? Why are we preparing people to be software engineers, but not giving them software engineering tools? Instead, we focus just on, on computer science, which is an important, an important skill, but not everything you need. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an optimistic, of course, but uh, I think uh, that changed a lot over the last few years because, uh, uh, for instance, ourselves in Plastic SEM, we, we, we give a lot of uh, licenses to universities all around the world. And then you have GitHub and GitLab and all those uh, Git products that are, you know, I think every single student these days knows about. I mean, I was uh, on a... Um, we have this uh, contest here, a local contest for uh, like young programmers and so on. And every single uh, submission was in GitHub. I remember 10 years ago, nothing was even close to being version control, right? So I think that changed a lot in the mm -hmm. last few years. Like, uh, they, I mean, I think all the ecosystem around Git, although yeah. they are competitors of our product, yeah, but right. I think they did well, but a they, really... But they did create a revolution. We, absolutely. We have to acknowledge that. So. Absolutely. They, they did a great job evangelizing the, the whole world and teaching the whole world mm -hmm. that. So I think... They did a super good work. Yeah. All right. Um, are there other things that we want to talk about before we slip off? Being so long since we've done this, I've forgotten the format. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to, was there something I wanted to say? Oh, we did put out a call for, uh, for reviewers for CPPCon. We got a record number of submissions, just kind of blew the doors off. Um, but we put out a call. I think we're in great shape now. We have three times as many people on the program committee as we did <laughs> when we started. So we're in great shape. Um, but, but I'm, I'm expecting a great program in September simply because, um, we got over 260 submissions and we have about 120 spots. So you can figure out of those submissions, I could probably go through and really easily find maybe 20 submissions I'd rather not have. But the vast majority of those submissions are solid submissions that we would be proud to have. And we're going to end up saying no to, you know, something like 200 people, 200 submissions that are solid. And that's, that's really tough. But what that means for attendees is um, that the program in September should be really good. At least if the program committee does the job they're supposed to do, which is to find those gems, which uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I think, I think it's going to be a great conference. Um, and um, so I'm looking forward to that. And talking of CPP gone, and you already mentioned it earlier, uh, tool time is going to be back. And I haven't had a chance to, to really start looking at it yet, but we'll, we'll get that sorted quite soon and, and start announcing things. But yeah, yeah. if you if you have a tool that you want to to talk about, start thinking about how you might want to do that now. We'll twist Pablo's arm and see if we can get plastic and semantic merge represented there. That would be great. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. So I guess we're ready to say uh, safe coding. Thanks for having me. It was a, a real pleasure to, to to be with you. Thank you. Safe coding. Safe coding. And safe coding. <laughs>